Again, good morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And along with Lon, I do hope that you had a happy Easter. If you're a member of 2nd, I know that you did. My goodness, we're so blessed by Samuel and Calvin and our choir and musicians. It was just a, a gorgeous celebration. I don't know about you, after <clears throat> the joy and the jubilation of an Easter service like the one that we had here, I often experience a come down in the days that follow. I'm not necessarily talking about the return to normalcy that you know, we often experience after a big spiritual high, although that's part of it. I'm just really talking about the question that I wrestle with sometimes, like what now am I supposed to do? I'm a man. I want to know exactly what it is I'm supposed to do after this great news announcement that we've received, that we receive every Sunday, but particularly on Easter. You know, I believe with all of my heart in the historical and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, but what now are we supposed to do? I believe the resurrection has changed the world. I believe it has implications on my life, but, but what now? What are we supposed to do? Maybe some of you have wrestled with those questions in the past couple of days. I believe Jesus has conquered sin. I believe that Jesus has conquered the grave. But what now? In our passage this morning, amidst defending his ministry and apostleship with the little congregation there in Corinth, Paul reveals to us our great what now as men after God's own heart. So let's read it together in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, we, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Again, I'm so grateful, as Bobby prayed, that you've given us this opportunity to come together as friends and brothers in the Lord Jesus to study at your word. Uh, we pray that you would set apart this time, that you would use it uh, for our edification, that we wouldn't simply be informed but truly transformed, that we might be more like Jesus. So we pray that you'd send your spirit upon us. Teach us, Father, for your servants listen. And it's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. The gospel, the good news of the crucified and risen Messiah has changed the world. If Jesus has not risen, just go about your day. Nothing has changed. But since Jesus has risen from the grave, everything has changed. It is the greatest news announcement ever to be declared since the dawn of time. Paul himself elsewhere says that this is the message of salvation to all who believe. And the reality is, because of that, one of the major implications, one of our great what-nows, brothers, 
is evangelism. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I think about evangelism, I get heartburn, okay? I'm looking out at crowds, and I see some of you who are very gifted at sharing your faith. I am not one of those people. Whenever I have the opportunity to share my faith, I just think about Zantac and how desperately I need it, okay? I remember one time when I was recently converted long ago, I shared my faith with uh, one of my friends, and uh, it didn't go very well. He wasn't understanding it, and I wasn't describing Jesus or the gospel uh, accurately, and I got so frustrated, I actually cussed in the middle of my gospel presentation, okay? I would later find out that you're not supposed to do that in seminary. Um, Thankfully, he became a Christian, not of my own doing. But praise be to God that I have grown since then. I have learned some things. I've, I've learned, you know, don't say any profanities when you're sharing the gospel. But I'm still not good at it. I still get nervous. And just like you, I mean, I feel awkward. And I get clammy. And I think through, you know, excuses <laughs> to get me out of it. Like, there's people that are much more qualified than me as a pastor than sharing my faith. I mean, there's people out there that are gifted. I'm going to mess this up. Or he's a family member. I can't, I can't ruin this relationship. Right. But as I've studied the Bible, I've come to the conclusion that those excuses just don't hold water. I mean, Jesus himself said that the good news of the kingdom is like a lamp that has been brought into a darkened room. You don't put that light under a basket or under the bed. You let it shine forth. And one of the reasons that we let it shine forth is because the gospel asserts certain truths, certain life-changing truths, and it simply would be unloving not to share them. And oftentimes, regrettably, it's the non-believers who understand that more than even the church. You've heard me share this quote before, but it's so convicting. It's by Penn Jillette. He's a famous comedian, magician. He has this whole thing. And he's an ardent atheist. And he simply said he doesn't respect Christians who don't proselytize. This is what he said. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and some people are going to hell... And you have the answer, but you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? And I'll share that not to shame anybody in this room, but rather to, one, sober us, but also to embolden us. Because he speaks more than he knows. We we really do have the answer, brothers. We have the remedy to man's problem. We have received the greatest message that has changed the world. And as those who have been saved by it, you and I have been given the greatest what now imaginable. We have been transformed into evangelists, or as Paul describes us here, ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your title if you're in Jesus. You're an ambassador. Isn't that cool sounding? If you are a Christian, a baby Christian, an old Christian, you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your distinction. And in this passage, Paul tells us all what that means. So three things. First off, you and I have received the message that has changed the world. You and I have received the message that has changed the world. And the verses in which I provided, Paul reminds us of the incredible power of the gospel and how it's the only hope for the world. Just think about it. Every world religion, every current worldview, every single person, believer or not, knows down deep in their guts that there's something wrong with this world. 
They might ignore it or they might medicate themselves to deny it, but everybody knows. I mean, you can't hide the bacon on this. It's just simply in the air that we breathe that this world is not as it ought to be. Everybody knows that. Now, what's really interesting, starting in the 20th century, people in the culture began assuming that the the main problem that we all face is a problem of alienation. And they had different examples of this type of alienation. Marx, for example, said that the main problem is that people are alienated from their production. And because of that, there's all these lesser problems that exist in the world. With the rise of psychiatry, they would say that man's main problem is that we have been alienated from ourselves. Our minds are broken. We're depressed people. We're no longer at home in our own bodies. And therefore, that is the reason for all these lesser problems in the world. Even today, sociologists say that our main problem is that we're alienated from our fellow man. That is the main problem and the reason for all these lesser problems. Now, the reality is those are all true on some level, but the Bible tells us that those lesser alienations are just symptoms of our greater alienation problem. And it's that human beings have been alienated from God. This is what Paul implies in verse uh, 19 where he says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. The need for reconciliation implies the problem of alienation. Right? So what is it that human beings are alienated by God for? Why are we alienated? Well, again, as Christians, we have the answer. That's part of this message that we have received. And we know since Genesis 3, when Adam rebelled and all of humanity fell into sin, the world broke including man's relationship with God. Now, it's because of that that everything else broke. Our relationship with creation broke. Our relationship with each other broke. Our relationship with ourselves broke. There's no longer shalom. All is broken. But all of it comes back to the fact that rather than peace, there is now hostility between man and God. Now, of course, man is hostile towards God. We know that, right? Because in Adam, we rebelled against him. We try to dethrone God and install ourselves as king. In Adam, we've all committed high treason against the sovereign of the universe. Of course, we are hostile towards God in our sin. But more importantly, God is hostile towards sinful man. Right? Because we've rebelled against him. And the Bible tells us that justly we are under his wrath. And sin, therefore, just simply cannot coexist with a just and holy God. So in judgment, we see in Genesis 3, God exiles humanity from his presence, right? So that means then whenever we're born, every man, woman, and child are born alienated from God. That's the main problem. It's not that people group. It's not that person. It's not that cultural issue. It's the fact that humanity has offended God. And there's not one thing man can do to change that in and of himself. In fact, sinful man doesn't want to change it and doesn't care. But that's what makes this message of the gospel so amazing. This message that you and I have received so mind-boggling, so world-changing. Because the gospel is not the story of sinful man pursuing God. It's the story of God, the offended one, pursuing sinful man. This is why Paul says that God was reconciling. Not Paul, not other people, not you and me. You and I have not done squat in this whole thing. The only thing that we've contributed is our sin to be forgiven and our lives to be redeemed. But God is the one that's reconciling. This whole restoration project, this whole rescue plan is a work of God from start to finish. And if you look in this passage, particularly the verses that I gave you, you'll see eight verbs that describe the work of God. And every single of those verbs describe 
God's initiating grace. His initiating grace. His will. His will to intervene into the muck of our lives. His initiating grace to transform rebels and sinners into his royal children. And how does he do that? Well, that's the message. That God in love sent his only begotten son who took on our mess, who took on our humanity, who took on our sin, who lived the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live but couldn't, so he does it in our stead, who graciously and obediently goes to the cross as our substitute, where in him no longer are our sins reckoned to us, but they are reckoned to him so that you and I might become the righteousness of God, and his resurrection is the giant receipt across history that his redemptive plan has worked and that sins in him have been paid for in full. The gospel of Jesus and only the gospel of Jesus is our hope of reconciliation. It's the only hope for the world. It's the only hope for the city of Memphis. And it's the only hope for our family and our friends. The gospel of Jesus, the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. And Paul says it has become his life's purpose to share that message which has changed the world with the world. And as new creations, he says now is our life purpose too. Because while Jesus did say it is finished on the cross, and it is finished, Paul knows the only thing left remaining is sinful man's need to respond to that message of grace. And brothers, as Christians, that's the only reason that we're here. That is the only reason that we have breath in our lungs to share the message of Christ and to deliver it to the world. I mean, you could say that's one of the primary purposes of our salvation. Just as Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, we are saved in Christ to become ambassadors of Christ. We have received the message that has changed the world, brothers. And that means also we have an incredible mission, which leads us to our second point. We have an incredible mission. In verses 18 uh, through 20, Paul says, As new creations, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, we are now ambassadors of Christ, where God makes his appeal through us. Isn't that amazing? Just, just listen to those words, where God makes his appeal through us. Just think about it. The, the, when you were converted or when you realized that you were a Christian, right? I had a clear conversion moment. My wife didn't. She just, she never knows a day where she wasn't a believer. But she does know the general time of where it just made sense, right? So whenever that was for you, your life was generally the same at that point. You woke up with the same problems, right? You, you woke up with the same lousy job. You, you woke up with the same uh, leaky roof that your spouse or your wife just you know, tells you to fix, but you haven't yet. It's kind of an autobiography. You woke up with the same gut, right? But make no mistake, you woke up with the greatest identity and the greatest purpose imaginable. In Jesus Christ, you have been bestowed the greatest dignity that the one who created Adams has chosen you to make his appeal through. Isn't that amazing that God has chosen you to make his appeal through, brothers? You are the most important people on the planet as believers. 
the most important people on the planet with the most important mission and the most important purpose. And in this passage, Paul says a few things about this mission that we've received. First off, our mission is a verbal one. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our mission is a verbal one. You may have heard the old one-liner, usually attributed to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, that uh, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Have you all heard that? That used to be my go-to to get out of evangelism, by the way. <laughs> Only problem is old Frank never said that, okay? It's a giant misquote. <laughs> and the reality is, it is important for us to demonstrate the gospel. Of course it is. We're to embody the gospel. It's to shape our lives, to direct our lives. We're the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love people just as Christ has loved us, right? But deed ministry is never had at the cost of word ministry, those things always go together. I mean, just take Jesus himself. He had a holistic ministry. He preached the gospel. He taught the scriptures and he healed the sick. Right? But the capstone of his ministry was preaching. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. Proclamation of the gospel was Jesus' priority. And as ambassadors of Jesus, it is now our priority. Now, what does it mean to be an ambassador? An ambassador is a delegate sent from one nation to another nation to speak on behalf of that sending nation. All right, that's what an ambassador is. We're delegates. All right, so let's just apply this to our circumstances. We are saints in Memphis. But what this means is our home isn't Memphis. Our true citizenship is in heaven, and God graciously and sovereignly has placed us in Memphis to speak on behalf of our king. We are spokesmen for a foreign power, Christians. So just think about this. The next time that you are in a conversation with a friend or a brother or a coworker, and spiritual things come up, and that usually does. When you're close with someone, spiritual things usually come up, right? When that happens, that did not happen by accident. God, who makes his appeal through you, has orchestrated that. So don't bow away from it, but rather step into it by faith. Because imagine this. This is, this is what's happening. There's this divine cable that extends from heaven through you to that person where God, mysteriously by grace, is making his appeal through you. Isn't that an amazing thought? How unworthy we are, but God has chosen us as broken vessels to do that. That's our ministry, brothers. So first off, it's a verbal one, but secondly, it's also an inclusive ministry. We see in verse 16 where Paul says, We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We used to regard Jesus according to the flesh, but no longer. Therefore, we regard no one else according to the flesh. What that means is, is as new creations, you and I have received new eyeballs, basically. And it means as Christians, we, we, we no longer view people the way that we used to. But now we see them, we view them, we regard them, we interact with them as they truly are. Right? And there's at least three things I think this means. First off, it means that we recognize the dignity, worth, and value in every single person that we meet. And I mean every single person. The dignity and the worth and the value. Right, because we know as Christians that every single person is an image bearer created in the image of God, which means then we must reject every single form of bigotry as it comes up, and we must reject every single characterization that television describes to certain people groups. We must delete those from our minds. C.S. Lewis says there is no ordinary people in this world. You have never met a mere mortal. 
Every single person is an image bearer, immortal, created by God, that we're either helping to heaven or helping to hell. Every single person is created in God's image, worthy of dignity and value. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we also must recognize, too, that everybody is a sinner, right? I mean, we know that. G.K. Chesterton said that it's, uh, total depravity is the one doctrine that we have empirical data for. We know that everybody's a sinner. Therefore, we can't exalt or idolize one person or one type of person or one people group over another because everybody is on their face before the foot of the cross. The ground is level, right? So everybody's a sinner. But lastly, we see the spiritual potential in people. That in Christ, anybody can be made new. There's no one that's beyond redemption. So let's just apply this to our day-in, day-out lives. Oftentimes, when I have the opportunity to share my faith and I clam up, I usually have two thoughts. One, this person has everything already. There's no way they're going to accept Jesus Christ. Or that this person's heart is so hard, I know that he's just going to tell me what I can do. And so I'm just not going to waste my time. Right? But let's just apply these things. First off, we know that no one has anything until Christ is their everything. St. Augustine said that all of us have God-sized holes. We were born with God-sized hole in our hearts, and we will remain dissatisfied until that hole is filled with Christ. We know what people need, church. We know what our friends need. We know what our family need. We know what our coworkers need, what our neighbors need. They need Christ. There is no fulfillment. There is no joy. There is no satisfaction or salvation primarily apart from Christ. No one has anything until they have Christ. And furthermore, if Christ can conquer the grave, you better believe he can conquer your friend's hard heart. And that is good news. That no one is beyond redemption. So take heart. Your responsibility is not to convert anybody. That's Jesus' business. Our only responsibility is to make the introduction. And what a gift that is. And we can entrust that relationship and that person and that conversation that we have into the hands of the king that we represent. So our mission, first off, is a verbal one. Secondly, it's an inclusive one. No one's out of bounds. Thirdly, our mission is an urgent one. You can look at the text and just see how urgent Paul is about this. He's begging the church to get busy in the harvest field, in this ministry of reconciliation. But he gets explicit about it actually in the next chapter, verse 2, where he says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, but he says, Today, now is the day of salvation. The kingdom of God has come. That means that our ministry is not a lackadaisical one. It's an urgent one. Jesus himself said, as we've already said before, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't delay, but rather repent and believe. And he later tells us in Matthew 9 that that harvest field is ripe. Brothers, we have been given the most amazing what now. We are God's spokesmen. We are agents of reconciliation. We have been made ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very tools that he has chosen for his kingdom work. But I think one of the reasons that we, that I, lack the motivation to sometimes enter into this mission field is really two reasons. One, this is a costly ministry. Right? I mean, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ is also to be a prophet. <laughs> and, and we know how prophets were treated in the Bible. 
Sometimes the message is, is received with much joy. Most times, not so much. Also, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ means that we have to be fools for Christ. And I don't like being a fool. One of my most consistent prayers, actually, before I teach or anything, is God, give me the courage to be a fool for Jesus. Because it doesn't come naturally to me. And it doesn't come naturally to you either. This is a costly ministry. But I think the main reason we like the motivation to enter into this mission that Jesus has given us the dignity of participating in is because we don't always believe the gospel applies to us. Jesus, I know, I know that you love those sinners over there, but how can I be sure that you love me? Right, because if we're confused about that, there's no way we're going to live sacrificial or costly lives in a costly ministry. How can we live selfless lives if we believe God's love for me has strings attached? We can't do that. You can't love anybody if there's strings attached, truly. So God, how do I know that you love me beyond measure? That leads us to our last point, the motivation. Verse 14, Paul says, the love of Christ controls me. He says that is his motivation for anything. That's his motivation for a sufferable life. That's his motivation for emptying his life for others. That is his motivation for ministry. The perfect love of Jesus Christ controls me. On the outset, we just have to understand that every single human being is controlled by love. It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's really, I love, therefore I am. Anything that anybody does is as a result of whatever it is they love. We are controlled by loves. We were designed, actually, to be controlled by loves in my interpretation of Scripture. The only problem is, as, as sinners, we love the wrong things. You know, it's football season, or rather spring practices upon us, and I'm a huge football fan. And one of my favorite stories that I love to bring up to Alabama fans is Harvey Updike. Do you remember that guy, Harvey Updike, who poisoned Tumor's Tree? Does anybody remember that? That was kind of funny. He poisoned Tumor's Tree. He named his daughter Crimson Tide, which is, you know, the story in itself. And as he was being carried off to prison, he yelled, roll tide out the window. You know why he did that? Because he was controlled by a false love. All the things that we do in sin is because we're controlled by false loves. Another illustration, another famous illustration was in Tim Keller's idol book, uh, the CEO of Freddie Mac in the 2008 recession hung himself. Why? Because he was controlled by the love of money. People are controlled by false loves, by the wrong loves. Paul himself was controlled by the wrong love. He was controlled by his love for religion. That's why he was a persecutor of the church. He, he loved being right to everybody else who was wrong. And it ruined his life. But in this passage, Paul said that he's finally controlled by the right love. He's controlled by the love that lifts up. He's controlled by the love that satisfies. He's controlled by the love that fulfills. He's controlled by the love that motivates him to empty his life for the sake of others, the perfect love of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, we're in here thinking, or at least I'm thinking, Paul, that's great for you that you know that you're loved beyond measure. How do I know that I'm loved beyond measure? Paul says, this is how, verse 15, I have concluded this, that the one who has died for all has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, get this, who for their sake 
died and was raised. In other words, for Paul, the gospel isn't a whole bunch of principles and it's not theory, but it's the proof, it's the message that God loves him beyond measure and it's the message that God loves us beyond measure. And the only proof that we will ever need is the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, but Jesus did not stay dead, brothers. He is risen. And the reason that he did all of that was not in order to love you, but because he already did where he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness and he rises to new life so that we finally might delight in him as he already delights in us. The cross of Jesus and the empty tomb are the only proofs that you'll ever need to know that you are loved beyond measure, brothers. God loves you. It's a truth that is so good to be true, we have a hard time believing it. So you tell your brother sitting next to you as a part of our discussion questions to remind you how loved you are by Christ. That there's not one thing in this world that could ever separate you from the Father's love as those in Christ. And the only proof you need is the cross and the empty tomb. Now how do we apply this to this mission that Christ has given us? Well, here's how. It has nothing to do with you being perfect it has nothing to do with you having the right things to say. It has nothing to do with you worrying about who is or who is not converted. All it has to do is with you telling the good news of the story of the love of God in Christ Jesus that you have richly received and he so freely offers the world. That's it. You tell them the love story that you're involved with. You tell them the story about the God who so loved the world that he sent his only son for you. That's it. Brothers, isn't this amazing? You and I have been given the most amazing what now? You don't have to wonder. We have been made ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your distinction. And the way that we live out that faithfully is simply by resting in the gospel that we're called to proclaim. The gospel that tells us, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message. And what a message it is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gospel of Jesus, which tells us that we're more sinful than we ever thought imaginable, but in the Lord Jesus Christ we're more loved than we ever dared to believe. Father, help us by your spirit to rest in that and to truly believe it. Help us to have the courage to remind our brothers in this room about that amazing gospel truth that you love us. And by your spirit, compel us to share that great news with the world. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen.